I'm reading this morning from the book of Ezra, and I want to say again, welcome to all of our visitors in the house today. You make it special. And uh, we're going to read from Ezra chapter, chapter 9, beginning with verse number 5. Ezra is praying to the Lord, and he's praying, and he's saying, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and I said, O my God, I'm ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings, our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, and now for a little space, grace hath been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God had not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving and to set up the house of our God and to repair our de- the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. Lord, I thank and praise you now for the word, and I pray, God, that you would bring the anointing and help me to speak and preach to you people what you've laid on my heart this morning, what I want to share with them in Jesus' name. Everybody say, in Jesus' name. name. Greet several people as you're being seated. Welcome them to the house of God this morning. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. This morning I want to talk to you about grace notes. Grace notes. And from the eighth verse of my text this morning, Ezra prays and says, Now for a little space, grace has been shown from the Lord our God from heaven. Everybody? Thank God for his grace and mercy. It's a wonderful thing. Hallelujah. But we're going to talk about it tonight, today. Uh, When the learned and wealthy John Selden was dying, he said to Archbishop Usher, I have surveyed most of the learning that is among the sons of man, and my study is filled with books and manuscripts. He had 8,000 of them in his library, and in those days that was a considerable expense. I have 8,000 books in my library on various subjects, but at present I cannot recollect any passage out of all my books and papers whereon I can rest my soul save from this sacred scripture, the grace of God 
that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We're going to talk about grace notes and beyond today. John Newton, the famous uh, writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, said this. He said, when I get to heaven, uh, there I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder I will see will be so many people whom I did not expect to see there. The second wonder I shall see is to miss so many people that I did expect to see there. And the third wonder and the greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. Praise God. Amen. God's grace is sufficient for us. But God's grace is intended to take us to the next place. The situation in the book of Ezra was such that uh, Ezra picks up where 2 Chronicles leaves off. The last two verses of 2 Chronicles, the first two verses of Ezra, uh, form a chronological bridge in history between uh, these two books, and they're meant to go together. Ezra, the book of Ezra, covers some 800 years of the history of the kingdom of Judah, and uh, it, it ends with the work of Nehemiah in restoring the wall. Ezra mentioned that one of the things that God was giving them space to do was to put a nail uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem and that the walls of Judah and Jerusalem would be built again. It would take finally 80 years and another man coming along to accomplish that uh, prophecy. Now this period that we're talking about is the return from Babylonian captivity. And this return followed shortly after Daniel read the handwriting on the wall in, in Belteshazzar's, the end of Belteshazzar's reign. The same night that, that Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall, King Cyrus pierced the walls of Babylon, killed Belteshazzar, and conquered and the Babylonian kingdom and empire fell to the Medes and the Persians that same night. Haley says that probably Daniel showed Cyrus the prophecies that were thus fulfilled in his coming, and uh, these prophecies were the prophecies of Jeremiah and of Isaiah. He showed him, actually, the prophecies of Isaiah, who 200 years before this event had prophesied by name a king by the name of Cyrus who was going to overthrow Babylon. This was before Babylon had even risen as an empire, and already God is revealing the downfall of that empire and the man who will do it. So when Cyrus saw the evidences there, heard the story about the handwriting on the wall, how that God delivered this into his hand, what do you think he must have felt about the God of heaven, the God that Daniel worshipped, and the God that the Hebrews believed in? What do you think he must have felt? toward that God. He must have felt very special. 
I feel special. This God knows me. He set this up. He made this happen. So there is going to be in the mind of Cyrus and in the mind of the early Persian kings an allegiance, a loyalty to uh, a, a spirit, to a system, to a God, to a deity, to, to the prophets uh, of this God and to the people of this God that will be uh, a good feeling toward them. And uh, Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 44, 26 to 28, 45 verses 1 and 13 about King, about Cyrus. So it's no wonder Cyrus would have a high regard for the Jews' God. There may have been another reason as well uh, that this should have taken place because in those days there was a very, uh, you know, every, they, they were superstitious. They believed in gods and goddesses. Uh, uh, there was a very clear association and a clear belief in many deities and many gods of the land. And in every culture, in every demographic group, and indeed in every locality, whether it be city, town, or village, each had their own deities. We might think of them today in modern terms of uh, the uh, citizens of Chicago uh, favoring the Chicago Cubs. Is it Cubs? Uh, or uh, if you're from Boston, the, the Red Sox. If from New York City, the Yankees. Right? I mean, every city had their own culture and their own belief system and their own deity, and they were fiercely loyal to their deities. And in fact, many of the tribes and even individual families would have their own preferred deities and would that have within their uh, household, a cult to that deity or god or goddess that they preferred or favored or believed was their particular unique god that, that was going to protect them. And in modern terms today, we still carry that down. I mean, uh, some people don't think of it this way, but it really is what they're doing when they place a statue of, uh, what is it, St. Jude uh, on the dashboard of their car or wear various amulets, charms, and whatever, scapulars, crosses, uh, around their necks, crucifixes. They, they are associating uh, a particular benefit there uh, with a local, localized deity, my deity of preferred choice, as it were. And it was thought in those times that the deities, the, those deities, had superior influence within their own locality. And so where one god would have been very strong in one place, if he were to be taken out of that place, or if his people were, were to be removed from that place, he would be weaker or maybe even powerless if he was interfering in the deities of another place, locale. So... Uh, so in Ezra 7, 12 through 26, where we have a, a copy of King Artaxerxes' executive order on the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem. You will find it written out there in the Bible. This is what the king said should happen. I'm not going to read it, but, you know, it's a, it's a matter of history. It's a copy of a king's executive order that, uh, that, that something, his will be carried out. And the will was to restore, rebuild the temple and to restore the worship of the Jewish God in Jerusalem. And uh, it, it uh, very well 
may have been also because state policy recognized the influence of the local deity on the peace and the well-being of the land. Anger the local god and you invite his wrath and resistance. So if you couple that kind of thinking with the um, favor that these early Persian kings might have had toward the Jewish deity because of Daniel and because of the prophets and the prophecies, you will see that there was a very clear interest in wanting to see that in that locale, God Jehovah, the God of heaven, be honored and be worshipped. We will even find direct evidence for that in Ezra 7, 23, where Artaxerxes says that, uh, whoso, that whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So it was very clear that he wished to honor the God of prophecy that helped to establish his throne and his kingdom uh, so, so that things would go well in the land. We know it's a tenet of scripture uh, that uh, we should pray for kings and for priests and for governors and for those in government, right? Paul said, pray for them that it, there may be peace in the land and that things may go well with you. I think that we do not do this enough. I think we should stop right now and just lift up the president and the Congress people and all this mess that's going on in Washington and pray, amen, that God would help us right now, that we might have peace and that it would go well with us. Let's do that right now. In Jesus' name, we pray for our land. We pray for our government. We pray for our leaders, the governors of states and the Senates, the legislative bodies of states and of our national government body, Lord, I pray that you would put God-fearing people who believe in good, conservative, traditional values that agree with Judeo-Christian principles and Bible values in control of our government, Lord God, I pray that there might be peace and safety in our land, that things would go well with us in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. This is not going to be a political sermon, but I will say that you should cast your votes along lines uh, where policies are most in favor of Bible values and principles and not through some particular allegiance to a party, be it Republican, be it Democrat, or whatever comes up in between. It doesn't matter what they call themselves, but watch their voting record and Try to get somebody in there whose values match the values of God, the church, the Bible, and good conservative Christian values. Let's give God a hand praise. You don't have to like the person. That's not important. But policy is important. And we need to be observant of that. And we need to take care. Uh, so, so here's the situation. Ezra takes very seriously this turn of events that has just happened here following uh, the handwriting on the wall and the conquest of Babylon. And uh, he recognizes the miraculous hand of God in this surprising historical anomaly. For what defeated nation would be allowed to return to its homeland, to its culture, and to its religion? Those things 
would have been considered finished and done with when a nation was defeated. And the purpose would have been to assimilate that into the new culture and to completely get rid of anything remaining of that which had been defeated. Now, this is, as I said, an historical anomaly, something totally surprising, something totally unexpected. It should never have happened. And Ezra sees the miracle of God in this moment. You can imagine, and I'm sure you can relate to it even, that when you are in God's moment, your life, your life's mission, your, the work that you're doing for God, when you're in God's moment, you feel that security, you feel that hand, you feel that divine destiny. I, I so felt it during our building program here recently. Uh, the, just the, mirac- the miracle that brought us the ability to, to actually pull that off and to do that. And, uh, and, and to be in a place in my life where at, at, at getting toward an advanced age, I won't admit to being old yet, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly older than I was. But to still be strong enough to carry the weight and to carry the burden, to carry, to lead the charge in, in doing the work and, and just uh, knowing that God was in it and that God was with me and that there was such confidence, there's, there's such confidence when you know that your life's work is matching God's mission and purpose for you. It's powerful. It's powerful, people. Power. But I think so many times we fumble our way through life. We drop the ball repeatedly and continuously, and we do not really understand or find or, or even know what the will of God is for us or what is, what is our meaning and what is, what is our purpose in life. I think it's paramount. I think it's really fundamentally paramount to your spiritual well-being for you to understand the will of God for your life and to be in it, and to be in it. Because to not know that is to really stumble through life, just going from coincidence to coincidence, purposeless and without meaning. The summation of all of our days at the very end, uh, when we look back, can be nothing but lack and regret when we fail to find and fulfill God's mission and plan and purpose for our lives. So it's so very important. Ezra knew it and he felt it. And uh, he, he knows well the price that was paid for the sins of his forebears. That's evident from the prayer, his prayer of confession. This has happened to us because of our kings, because of our priests, and because of the sins that they have done before us. And so he's intent He's absolutely rigidly intent on writing the errors of the past. Now, Ezra is a priest, and he is going to be restored. Uh, the, the priesthood is going to be restored. He's not only a priest, uh, he's a direct descendant of Aaron, as his genealogy proves. Uh, but he is a priest, a teaching priest, and an expert on the law. In fact, it might be said that Ezra is the founder of the order of scribes, a new order that comes out of the Babylonian captivity. 
Synagogues came out of the Babylonian captivity. Rabbis came out of the Babylonian captivity. It was all built around understanding and getting back to the law of God, the commandment of God, because we realize that we're here because we strayed from the law of God. We failed in our mission and in our purpose. We went off and we did our own things and we lived the, own, the way we wanted to. We rejected and abandoned God and his law. And so we realized we made a mistake. And so now they're very seriously studying the law and the word of God so that they can live right and do right. That's important. That is an attitude that we need to have. Uh, we, we, we will fail miserably if we fail to respect the word of God and the law of God. If we want to live a life that does not coincide with God's principles, but rather just fulfills our own lustful gratification and intent, we will fail miserably in life. But in order for us to enjoy the peace and prosperity in our lives and upon the land, we have got to walk within the law and the commandment and the will of God. The principle, the purpose of God is so important. That's why the word is so powerful. That's why good preaching, apostolic preaching, well-founded preaching, Bible preaching that doesn't stray away from the truth of the word of God, that doesn't shy away from telling it like it is, is so vital. It is so important to you, to us, to all of us, because it keeps our culture as it should be, pure, undefiled, and unmixed from the values of this sinful world that surrounds us. So he is a revivalist of religion of the highest order. Some might even say that he was a ruthless revivalist. During the absence of the Jews in captivity, the land had been resettled by non-native peoples. <clears throat> and during their return, there were many that, uh, that the, the return of the Jews, a situation developed. Mixed marriages proliferated. And the Bible, Ezra mentions them, Amorites, Hittites, Egyptians, uh, and all Canaanites and a whole bunch of different people. You see, when the Jews have been taken out, the, the, the Babylonian kings repopulated the land with conquered peoples from other places. And so Judah and Jerusalem became a melting pot of cultures. We in America celebrate uh, our culture as a melting pot, as a very diverse culture. And uh, that, that's, you know, something that we think is good. We think it is good. But Ezra was concerned about the holy seed. He says that, holy seed, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's people that he called out to be separate and apart from the rest of the people. Uh, that he wished to separate from all other people and make a people of his own. And commanded them, he commanded them not to mix marriages and marry outside of their culture and outside of their people. And so Ezra is concerned that the holy seed is being corrupted by the association with divergent cultures, norms, traditions, and ideas that must necessarily flow from such an admixture of peoples. How do, you, how do you separate your loyalty from the values of two different cultures represented in one family unit or marriage? You can take someone from China and take someone from Ethiopia and marry them. And there is going to be now a, a mixed 
cultural system, a mixed value system. The children that are a product of that marriage are, are not going to be Chinese. They're not going to be Ethiopian. They're going to be something new. They're going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they're going to put it together, and it'll be something totally new. And while uh, that could be good and, and exciting and exotic, when it comes to spirituality, now I'm not talking about anything against people of different races or cultures marrying today in our world. I'm only using this as a spiritual metaphor, if you understand. Uh, I'm totally in favor of mixed marriages in terms of race and culture. But in terms of spiritual life, in terms of spiritual life, uh, we, we have to so disassociate that. And the one kind of marriage that I'm not in favor of, no matter the culture or the race, is a mixed marriage between someone who is a child of God and someone who is a child of the devil. And we have Bible for that. We have Bible for that. So that is the one place where crossing over the line leads to problems and leads to divergent cultural views and values. How do children raised in such an environment uh, uh, understand their world uh, in any other way but accepting a piece of this and a piece of that and, and mixing it together? And for Ezra, he saw very clearly that no culture could remain pure and true to itself when such conditions exist. And so he saw that and he realized that. And Part of the great problem was that it wasn't just the people who were doing it, but the leadership was doing it as well. There were many in the priesthood class and many of the Levites that had married outside of their culture, had married people that were Canaanites or Egyptians or Amorites or whatever. These, these peoples that they were marrying into had a long history of being an enemy against God Jehovah God of the Jews. They had a long history of animosity toward and against the law of Moses and against the people of God and the laws of God. They didn't want anything to do with it. They, they thought it was not important and it was not valuable and they carried with them those ideas and those, those feelings. Uh, we, we should be careful of people whose conversions are based on relationships with people and not a true relationship with God. Because secretly they're going to carry those values with them uh, through life. And uh, we need a true heartfelt conversion. We have this one simple rule. That when we are born again of water and spirit. Baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for remission of our sins. And having the name of heaven and earth given us. So that we now are becoming the family of God in heaven. We <clears throat> who experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And our sins are being remitted through Jesus' name baptism. We have had our DNA changed. In the sense that we are now heirs of Abraham. We are heirs of Abraham. Uh, uh, our literal, literal DNA may not show any Jewish fruits, but as far as God is concerned, uh, we're just as good a Jew as anybody else. 
and, uh, and better even than because we now have the blessing of Abraham on our life. We can walk in the blessings of Abraham. We can receive the promises of Abraham. Everything that was available by the favor of God to his people then is available to us now. Hallelujah. And Jewish people may not recognize that today, but God in heaven recognizes that. Hallelujah. So we can celebrate uh, that. So we become part of the family of God. Amen. So, amen. So important. So while Americans celebrate the great melting pot of diversity, at the same time, certain norms and traditions and ideas are being thrown into confusion and even being lost to us today because of this mixing out and melting down of culture. So Ezra leads the people through a painful process of disassociation from strange wives and from mixed marriages. It, it, was, it was painful to set aside the wife and the children of that resultant marriage and to start a new family all over from holy seed. It was painful for everyone concerned. But when we make mistakes and go against the will of God for our lives, it's going to cause pain for everyone concerned. You're going to hurt, but other people are going to pay the price too. You will not suffer alone, but those near and dear to you are going to hurt, and they're going to have to walk the dark hill with you and go in the dark place with you. It's a shameful thing. It's better just to do it right to begin with, to do it right to begin with. You're better off to remain single the rest of your life. Paul even said it'd be better for you if you were single like me. You know, that you could put your whole life into giving, giving it to God and living for God than running off and getting married to the wrong person. Uh, that, that would just be a mistake. So when it comes to marriage, marry Holy Seed. <laughs> what can I say? Marry God's people. Marry into the faith. Marry people that are strong in God or don't marry at all. Just wait it out. Amen. Because you don't want to make a mistake that everybody's going to pay for and be hurt by. Now, uh, we talk about grace a lot. And uh, the Christian world depends upon the grace of God. And we do. We all depend. The Bible says all of sin and come short of the glory of God. If it were not for God's grace and mercy, none of us would be able to stand here this morning. Amen. And we could not be saved without it. So grace is a very important ingredient in our walk with God. It's necessary. Without it, none of us could, would be able to stay saved. We would have fallen short and fallen away from God a long time ago. So while grace is important, we need to understand the role of grace in our lives. Uh, and uh, Romans, the eighth chapter, tells us that the righteousness of the law might be filled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be so they that are in the flesh cannot please God but you're not in the flesh but in the spirit if so be the spirit of Christ of God dwell in you 
All right, so uh, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. If you're a musician, friends, you'll understand what a grace note is, right? A grace note. A grace note is a kind of music <coughs> notation <coughs> denoting several kinds of musical ornaments, and it is usually printed smaller to indicate that it is melodically and harmonically non-essential. <coughs> And when occurring by itself, a single grace note normally in indicates the intention of an acia catura. An acia catura. What is an acia catura? That's a fancy word for an up note, an, an, a note that's on the uptake. So before the principal note is to be played, a grace note is like a step into it. It's usually played a split second before it. It may be in, t in between time signature, like three and a, boom, and that's a grace note, and then you hit four or whatever. So a grace note is, uh, is something that uh, when they occur in groups, grace notes can be interpreted to indicate any of several different classes of ornamentation depending upon the interpretation. But essentially, a grace note, it's a noun, it's an extra note added as an embellishment and not essential to the harmony or the melody. So in other words, you can play it or not play it. Grace notes became very popular uh, when jazz uh, and swing music came into being. And indeed, uh, it was used on a monopia over and over and over again uh, to step into a syncopated beat or a syncopated rhythm. It kind of helped to establish that. So, so we understand here that, that a grace note is a vehicle to take us where we need to go. Think about that and let that sink in a minute. Grace, God's grace, and God's mercy, while it is powerful and beneficial and necessary to us, is not meant to be a crutch to lean on and rely on the rest of our life. To think that I can just sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent, and as long as grace will cover my sin, I can just do whatever I want to, and things are going to be okay. Grace is not meant for that. Grace is meant to take us to where we need to go. It is non-essential. It is not important. It is not the point. Amen. Uh, living in a state of grace is not the point. And it is the privilege of a child of God <clears throat> uh, to, to reach beyond the non-essential. To reach beyond the part that is harmonically and melodically unimportant to get to where we need to go to where it is important perfecting holiness in the fear of God and playing those notes in, in the key that God intended for us to play them in <laughs> hallelujah <laughs> Woo! hallelujah hallelujah God has a powerhouse orchestration for our life. The notation and the melody of our life is music to God to be played out. And when it's ordered and when it's harmonic and melodic, the angels can sing to it. 
creation can rejoice in it. Hallelujah. It'll, it'll say, peace be still to the waves. Amen. Demons will run and hide from it. Hallelujah. And it doesn't matter whether it's classical symphony music or swing music or just a reggae beat or whatever it is. So long as you get past the grace note and into the real thing and start doing it. Because it ain't music when it's only grace. It's not music to God when it's only grace. It becomes music to God. Amen. When we start playing out the real thing. Hallelujah. 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 Second Corinthians 6 and 14 uh, tells us this. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What co communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Hallelujah. 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 We need to re-understand and repurpose grace in our lives. And while it is necessary to bring us back from a mistake or a fall or an error, and while it is good and beneficial and positive in that it can do it, you need to understand, hallelujah, that you're not meant to stay there and play that same note over again, but you're to step into the reality that God intended for your life. You're to move up. And get where you need to be. Because that is so vital and so important. Grace is not permission to live in sin. But it's, an, it's a chance to escape it. It's another chance to get away from it. Hallelujah. God is trying to get you away from it. That's why he's spared you and given you this opportunity and this time and this grace. Don't stay in a state of grace. But move on to the perfection of holiness, to live in the fear of God, and to play your life out where it needs to be. Why? Because to be carnally minded is death. It's enmity to God. Now we, unfortunately, are stuck with a carnal nature. We were born with it. We have it. It's there all the time. It's always there. We're always having to fight it. We're always having to deal with it. It's what we live with, eat with, and sleep with. It's what we dream with, our carnal nature. It's just who we are. It's what we are. Hallelujah. It's so everyday and it's so ordinary. And we so often make excuses for it because of grace, you know. But we're just playing a grace note. Every time that we do that, we're playing a grace note, but we're not playing the real note that God wants us to play in our life. Hallelujah. How do we deal with carnal-mindedness. 
It's something that we have to battle with. It's something we have to fight. It's something that we have to recognize and realize is a reality in our life that I'm going to be carnal-minded most of the time. In fact, I'm going to be carnal-minded all the time that I'm not being spiritually minded. I'm always going to be in the flesh unless I intend not to be. This is where the deeper spirit development of the inner spiritual life of the Christian comes into play. This is where it becomes important for us. And I'm here to remind us today that, that as people of God, as Christians, that this is something that we always need to be mindful of, that we need to be working at, to be working at. Because to be near God, to truly be in the presence of God is to, is to feel an awesomeness, a sheathing, a shield, armor, protection. I don't think anyone who has the Holy Ghost is or should be unfamiliar with what it feels like to feel the anointing. Can anybody say, I know what it means to feel God's anointing? Now, we don't feel it 99.9% .9 of the time. Going through our daily life and through our daily routine, we don't feel the anointing of God, do we? If we just carry out our life, if we just go on living the way we've always lived, we are not going to feel the anointing of God. It's only when we set our face to seek God and turn our mind and our heart towards spiritual things that we begin to set up an atmosphere where the anointing of God, the feeling of it can be possible. It's one reason why I love Christian music, you know, gospel music, uh, because just listening to it, just putting it on in the background can change the atmosphere in your car or your home. People that could be fussing and fighting with each other, kids screaming and hollering, yelling, amen, just start playing some gospel music in the house, amen, and, 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 and just see if, if your spouse don't calm down. <laughs> and there start to be some peace come in the house, and peace in your own life, and the devil been chasing you around the bush all week, amen, get your... CDs out and put them on there and start lifting up the name of Jesus. Amen. And suddenly the devil don't feel so present anymore. <laughs> Depression comes to your mind and you're down in the dumps and you just feel like slashing your wrist. Amen. Now, when you, when you put on something, amen, that helps to change the atmosphere in your area, amen, uh, the Spirit of God begins to move. Hallelujah. And then when you take it the next step and you start opening your mouth and singing or praying or praising or whatever, amen, get your Bible out. Read the book of Psalms, amen. Spirits start flying off of you. Spirits start flying off of you. That old... That old depression that's sitting on you. That attitude that you got. Amen. It just starts to fly off of you. Hallelujah. 
amen, in, in, in a little while, oh, you could get to a place, amen, where you're talking to the Lord, and suddenly the hair rises on your arms, on the back of your neck. Hallelujah. It, it, the anointing hits you. Hallelujah. It begins to get physical. Hallelujah. It gets in your bones. It gets in your shoes and you want to dance. It gets in your hands and you want to clap. It gets in your legs and you want to jump. Hallelujah. It's in your arms and you can't hold them down. Hallelujah. Amen. The anointing. The anointing begins to come. Amen. You see, that's something that we can experience. It is something we can experience. But it's something we won't experience unless we're trying to experience it. Unless we're looking for it. Unless we want it. Hallelujah. Now. Oh, hallelujah. You've got to want it. He that hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. It's a promise. Hallelujah. If you're seeking God happily, you will find him. He's available. He's looking for somebody who's looking for him. I've seen people pull the anointing right straight out of heaven, right smack down on top of them. Hallelujah. Because uh, they were in a place spiritually where they were saying, fill me, God. Fill me. Fill me. Touch me. Touch me. Fill me. I need you. I want you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. God's just not going to slap us aside the head and say, here you go, here's some anointing for you today. Have a good day. He's not. But he's waiting for us to go to the garden. Yeah. Hallelujah. Wait. Anybody coming to the garden tonight? Evening time has come. I'm walking in the garden. I'm looking for somebody to communicate with. I want to have fellowship with you. Are you going to come in here and spend time with me? Or are you going to run off and do your own thing? Hey, would you rather wash those dishes? Or would you rather go outside and pray and talk to me? Hallelujah. 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 We can purposely... We can purposely experience God any time of the day we want to. But we have to want to. We have to seek Him out. We have to desire Him. We have to look for Him. Somebody said, well, I tried praying. I prayed for five minutes and nothing happened. Pray again. Elijah prayed seven times before he saw the cloud come up. But he wasn't going to stop praying because there's an anointing somewhere out there. There's an anointing somewhere. Somewhere. God's anointing exists. Elijah came by and flopped his mantle, his coat on top of Elisha's shoulder and whipped him off. Hallelujah. That's what God told him to do. Go, go, go by Elijah's house. Amen. He just flapped him with his coat. Pop, pop, pop. And Elisha felt something. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Something about that prophet. When he touched me, I felt something. I'm going to leave everything and follow that. That's what I'm going after. That's what I want. That's what I want. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And he followed Elijah and he served him, fixed his meals, washed his feet, washed his clothes, took care of him as a servant. Hallelujah. Why? Because there's an anointing somewhere. Somewhere. There's an anointing. I know it is out there somewhere. Somewhere. Someday I'm going to connect. Hallelujah. The sons of the 
The sons of the prophets, they were the professionals, you know. The prophets, they had the anointing. They were the anointed ones. And the sons of the prophets, they knew something about the anointing. They knew something about the power of God. And they were going to the schools of the prophets. They were studying all about the anointing. Uh, they, could, they could tell you the ups and downs, the ins and outs of the anointing, the theology of it. Amen. They, they knew all the places where you're supposed to go to find it. They knew about playing harps and instruments and bringing it down. They knew about all kinds of stuff. Hallelujah. But what they, what they knew and what they experienced were two different things. They knew a lot about the anointing, but Elijah had it. He had it. He had it. And Elisha was following it. There goes the man of God. Amen. He's got the anointing. Well, Elijah said, I'm going to go over here. Elisha, you stay here and take care of business. Oh, no. He said, if you're going, I'm going with you. Amen. I'm going with you because I felt it. I felt the anointing one time. I was in church. I felt the anointing. I know what God can do. I know how he can touch a life. Hallelujah. And wherever that is, that's what I want. What I want. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, the school of prophets say he knew all about it. They said, well, you you stay with Elijah. Amen. Uh, you know, he's going over here. And, and, and Elijah said, he said, I know what to do. I, don't worry about it. He said, I know what to do. He said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I know what to do. Hallelujah. And he did. He stayed with Elijah. And when Elijah left in the chariot of fire, Elijah had told him, he said, Elijah, he said, there's one thing I want, amen, for you to give me. And that's a double portion. That's a double portion of your anointing. Hallelujah. And when Elijah left in the flaming chariot to heaven, here come that mantle that had touched him way back before. It had touched him and it fell back to the earth. And Elisha ran and grabbed up that mantle. Hallelujah. Because he said, I know there's an anointing somewhere. And where I'm going to get it. There's an anointing somewhere. And I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. You want to come and pray? Now's the time. Amen. To come and pray. Hallelujah. Amen. Elisha picked up that mantle and he went out and he slapped the, the river and uh, he slapped the water and he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Hallelujah. Amen. Because if there really is an anointing out there and I can have it, I'm going to get it. Hallelujah. Where's the God of Elijah? And the water padded. As soon as that mantle hit it, the water parted. And the sons of the prophet saw it. They saw it, but they never touched it. They never felt it. You have got to want it. Hallelujah. 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 Now we can choose to live in the flesh. We can choose to just be carnal and follow a carnal-minded life. Hallelujah. And we can just play grace notes over and over again. But oh, hallelujah, if you want to take it to the next level and get to that place where God's spirit is, where you can touch God, you need to say to yourself, there's an anointing somewhere, and I want it. I'm going to get it. I'm seeking it. I'm here, God. I'm praying. Let's pray together. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, how we need the anointing. We need the anointing. Carnal mindedness is death. But the spiritual life, it's superior. It's above us. It's above our nature. It's above us. Hallelujah, we've got to step out of our flesh and our carnal mind.
is seek God. Seek God until he comes. Seek him till he comes. Hallelujah. Let's do it right now. I see people praying in the altar. Amen. I see people praying and worshiping. They're really struggling. They want to break through. God's touched their heart. He's, you're here in this altar because God's touched you and you want it. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm encouraging you to pray and break through. To pray and pray for one another. And break through. Amen. Because God wants you to live in the anointing. To walk in the anointing. Hallelujah. Because you see, when the anointing is on us, we are powerful. We know we're powerful. We know our prayers and our words and our expressions are powerful. And the things in our life that we do matter. We know that when we're in the anointing. We know it. Hallelujah. Help me to get in the anointing. God, I want to be in the anointing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So many times we intend to do well. As Paul said in Romans, the seventh chapter, but to, good is, to do good is in me, but how to find a way to do it, I don't know how to do that. Sin dwells in me. The good that I would, I don't do. And the things that I wished I didn't do, I, I find myself doing. Sin, a lot of us are living in a loop. A loop. You know what a loop is? Musically. If you know anything about music, you're a recording artist or whatever, you... You set up a track and you loop it. And, it'll, and some of you know how to do this. If you'd like a certain song, you want to play it over and over and over, a certain part of the song, you set your recorder up so it'll loop it and play it back over and over and over again. And a lot of us, a lot of us just, we live in a, a sin loop. And, 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 and the grace note in the loop is meant to step us out of the loop and into the and this is the real thing that we need to go. Hallelujah. But we just loop back in sin. Can constantly play the grace note and loop back in sin. Hallelujah. But somewhere in your life, God has a high note he wants to hear you play. And someone has within them a power chord. A power chord. Hallelujah. And, and you need to get out of the grace thing. Amen. And hit the high notes and play the power chords. Hallelujah. So that your life can really take on spiritual meaning and you can be happy and rejoice in the Lord. Let's give God a big hand praising as we go our way today. Amen. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Hallelujah.